0: As you entered worship this morning, we had um, elements that we have distributed for communion. And I'd just like to take a moment, and if you're watching at home, I invite you to also, on the first Sunday of each month, to have um, juice and, and bread prepared. And I'd like us to think about why we take communion. We are a church family, but more importantly, we are part of Christ's family. Because of our faith in Jesus, we are ushered into a relationship with God. And because of that, we are invited to Jesus' table. On the very night that Jesus gave himself up for us, the very night that he was betrayed and it was his last evening to be alive, our Savior thought of others and he thought of having a meal with them. And that's what he did. And in that meal, he took bread. A very common element from his society, a very necessary element for life. And he broke the bread, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat this, because this bread represents his body, his body which was broken for you and for me. And every time we take this bread, we are reminding ourselves that Christ died for us. So I invite you to receive this element with thanksgiving. And then the scripture tells us when the meal was over, our Savior took a cup. And he said, this cup isn't just any cup. It is a remembrance of his blood that was being shed for you and for me. So whenever we receive this cup, we're reminded that Christ gave his very life for us. So I invite you to receive this cup as a remembrance of Christ's blood that was shed for you and for me, And also as a reminder of why and how we become part of Christ's family. Being a Christian is not our works and our efforts. And communion is an opportunity to be reminded of that. That it's God's grace that allows us to be part of his family. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. And our trusting and our placing our faith in Christ. We don't only remember that when we take communion. We don't only remember it when we come to church. It is a constant memory in our life. And so this morning, as we continue in our worship service, I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 3, if you brought your Bibles along with you, or if you have an app to turn to it in your smartphones. As we will continue our study that we are calling Anxious no more. And this morning's message is really about grace. It's about God's grace in our life, that God does for you and for me what we can't do for ourselves. We've been studying through the book of Philippians because, as we've explained, it is Paul sitting in prison writing to us a letter. He wrote it to the church in Philippi, explaining to them the the joy that he had in his life, the peace that he had in life, not in a good time, but in a difficult time. Now, we face difficult times, and it's very easy for us in our difficult times to go very negative in our thinking and think, how can God have allowed me to go through this situation? And what Paul has given to us is a letter that reminds you and reminds me, and it reminds us every single time that we turn to it, that life is not about our efforts, and our relationship with God is not about our efforts, it's about what Jesus did for us. Do you hear the difference? It's not about you and me becoming good enough or doing more. It's about God's grace in our life and what God does for us. And I'd like to begin with a simple question. Do you ever feel like what you do is not enough? Yes, I heard the chuckles. Do you ever feel like you get to the end of the day and you needed to do more? Or in the midst of something, you're working hard and it's like, what more can I do? I experienced that last night as I was finishing up my message, and I still had some things to do. And I realized, why am I trying to keep doing more? But that's what we tend to do to ourselves. And that's what Paul helps us hear in this section of his letter to the Philippians. You see, life is not a competition. We make it a competition. It's not a competition. We're not comparing ourselves to others or trying to get ahead of others. We need to remind ourselves of this daily. Too often we treat life as if it is. We treat life as if I have to do one more thing to attain God's blessing in my life. Or I have to do one more thing in order for God to be pleased with me the Bible teaches the opposite. The Bible teaches grace, that God's love and God's goodness is bestowed upon us, not because of what we did, but because of what Christ did for us. And again, that's why we take communion. It's a reminder that Jesus died for us, that he gave his very life for us. Even when you come into a sanctuary and you look at a cross that's in front of us, it reminds us that we are here not based on our efforts. We're not part of a church because we earned the right to be here but because Jesus gave his life for us and gives us the privilege of being part of his family. That's all grace. That's God's blessing given to us beyond anything that we could have ever earned or deserved for ourselves. And that's why Paul's letter from prison to the Philippian church is Paul focusing on what really matters in life. And this morning, he gives us in this section of the letter some practical theology, Now, theology sometimes sounds like it's stuff that's so over our head that why do we care about it? But there are theological concepts that are within the scriptures that are very helpful for us to understand. In this morning's text, if I was to to say what it's about, it's about the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, I know you didn't come to church expecting theological terms, but that's what this is. It's God imputing, giving to us, putting on us not what we have done but what christ has done for us so the righteousness of jesus the goodness of jesus the perfection of jesus is given to us because of faith that's an amazing thing because i don't know about you but if i had to live according to my standard before god i fail every single day if i had to live according to my competition and competing with others, or doing more to earn a relationship with God, I fail. Amen? We all do that. We all come short. And so Paul is helping us understand this very basic understanding of what it means to be a Christian, is that God doesn't look at you and me and see our imperfection. God looks at us and sees what Christ has done for us. And it's literally, you know how at Halloween put people put on costumes, this is better than a costume. This is, we are literally clothed and being transformed, not according to what we do, but according to what Christ has done for us. That's the imputed righteousness of Christ. Listen as Paul talks about it in the third chapter of his letter to the Philippians. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. "'Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I gain, I count as loss for the sake of Christ.'" and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We have such a tendency to think in our own lives that we need to do more. We have such a tendency to feel less than, and to get ourselves all burdened down with the things that we failed to accomplish or the things that we've done wrong. And what Paul wants us to understand in this section of his letter is to understand the imputed righteousness of Christ, to understand that we are made new in Jesus, we need to avoid legalism. We need to avoid legalism. It's very easy to get caught up in a legalistic relationship with God. Paul puts it this way in verse 2, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. In the first century, legalism was found by trying to follow all the Old Testament laws and rules. And there were 600 plus rules in the Old Testament. All these laws that people tried to attain, and they tried to do this one, and they tried to do this one, and then the rabbis would get together, and they did what we call a hedge around the laws. What that meant is, you have a rule here that says something like, you can't work on the Sabbath, and then they would add rules to it. You can only walk so far on the Sabbath, that became a new rule. You can only do this kind of thing if your donkey fell into a ditch. Now, if he fell into a ditch that was a mile away, you couldn't help him. But if it was half a mile away, you could. And it just became all this crazy rule upon rule upon rule that we sort of laugh at. But we become our own worst enemies when we create our own legalism, and our own musts, and our own things in our life that we determine, I have to do this, or I haven't accomplished a good day. I have to do this, or I'm not enough. Ever had those thoughts? We do it all the time. We even do it within the Christian faith. My brother, one time, asked a pastor friend of his, he said, if Jesus came to get rid of all those rules, why has the church added so many of our own? It's a great question. The pastor answered with this. Oh, this time we got it right. <laughs> Wrong. There are no rules. There are no rules. That's, that's one of the hardest things for Christians to understand. That grace means we are forgiven, period. Martin Luther explained it this way. He said, sin and sin boldly, but, try, but trust Christ even more boldly. It doesn't mean we intentionally do the wrong thing, but we acknowledge our sinfulness. We acknowledge that we sin by thought, word, and deed every single day of our life. And if we think somehow that we're going to attain a righteousness by earning our way to God or by doing more or by adding another legalistic requirement in our life, it's not going to happen. It's all about God's grace and what Jesus did for us. In fact, Paul called those who added unnecessary rules dogs and evildoers. Now, I have to be honest, I like dogs. I really like dogs. So when I read that, I had to go back and think about my first trip to Nicaragua. And I have a friend, Belinda Forbes, who's a missionary in Nicaragua. And one of the first things she tells you when you go there is, Don't think these dogs are the same as the dogs in America. Because in the United States, people have these dogs as pets. But in Nicaragua, a lot of the dogs are wild and live on the streets. And they may look cute and cuddly, but don't go up and think that you can go pet a dog. Because they'll be vicious and they'll turn on you. And that's what Paul's referring to. If you think somehow that you can attain a righteousness with God by being legalistic and doing one more thing, trust me, it'll turn on you every single time. The very things that we think that somehow, if I just do this, we'll never do enough. It becomes a black hole that we can never fulfill, which is why God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. It's called grace. God's love being poured out to you, that you and I don't have to earn a relationship with God. It's graciously given to us. Then he goes on and he says, not only is it a dog who tries to give us legalism, It's evildoers, and an evildoer is one who steals or one who deceives another person. Legalism literally steals our mental, emotional, and spiritual health. When we become legalistic in our day, when we think I have to do one more thing, when we never do enough, it just tears us down and rips us apart. And we never feel good enough. We never feel adequate. We always see the things that we have not done or have left unaccomplished. Put it another way, don't think you can get life 100% correct. If you think you can get life 100% correct, if you think you can figure out all the rules and you can figure out all the ways to do everything, you can be dismissed from worship right now because trust me, there's nothing that the scripture has to say to us. If we can figure it out on our own, if we can just attain this perfect life all by ourselves and earn it and do one more thing, we don't need Christ's love and Christ's forgiveness. The whole purpose of Christ's forgiveness is because God so loved this world no matter what. God knows that, that we sin. God understands that we make mistakes. It's not okay. It's not the things that we do are okay, but God's love and God's grace is so much deeper. It was a number of years ago, and few churches back, that a friend in the congregation told me that this person wanted to do something for their birthday, so it was months ahead, and they wanted to do a certain amount of exercise, and they wanted to lose a certain amount of weight. So they asked me to sort of monitor with them, and they checked in with me, and they continued to do their work for the next few months, getting ready for their birthday, And they checked in, and as things were going along, things went really well. And by the time they got to their birthday, it was obvious that they had met their goal. And on the birthday, I called the person up on the phone. I said, you must feel so good. You accomplished what you wanted. And I still remember the chilling response. I should have made my goal less weight. It wasn't enough. Because it had become legalistic, the person felt like they should have lost more and got their weight down more. We do that to ourselves. We just take on ourselves and and we make it one more rule, one more thing, and we don't see how that just builds our anxiety and and creates a nightmare in our head is we never will live up to that standard of perfection that will never be accomplished by human effort. No matter how good you and I try to be, no matter how many rules or how much stuff we try to take on, it just burns us down. And that's what Paul is helping us understand, is he's writing from prison to these Christians. He's saying, realize this. Avoid legalism. Don't allow someone to come in and steal your peace and your sanity by giving you one more thing that you think that you need to accomplish and somehow think that that's going to make you in a better position with God. The only thing it does is it makes us as failures and gets us discouraged. And it goes on from the legalism. It says the other thing that does it to us is comparing. So beware of comparing. Remember, life's not a competition. How many times have you talked to a person who's not a person of faith or not a Christian and you try to to have any kind of conversation with them about our need for a Savior and people say, well, I'm better than other people. Okay, we're better than other people, but we're not as good as some other people. No matter what, once we try to put ourselves into a comparison, we never compare well enough. Paul talks about this in verses 4 through 7. He says, if anyone else thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have even more. Listen to his characteristics. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, that means he doesn't just have his masters, he's got his doctorate, and he's one who gets to teach others. Here are the accomplishments. All the things I've done. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, under the law, blameless. And then he makes it real. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. None of that means anything, Paul says. I'm not here to compare my life to someone else. He's writing to the Philippians, and he's writing to us, and he's saying, I'm not here to tell you I'm better than you, and that that somehow makes me good. Or that somehow, if you look at my life and say, gee, if I do a little bit more than the Apostle Paul, that somehow I will have fulfillment in life. We will never be able to live up to the expectations of ourselves and others when we try to compare. And God knows that about us, and that's why we have grace. That's why we have a Savior, That's why we have one who's done for you and for me so that we don't need to compare ourselves to someone else. I don't need to compare myself to other pastors. I don't need to compare myself to other husbands. I don't need to compare myself to other grandparents. The same is true for you. God doesn't ask us to live a life of comparing ourselves to others to somehow think that we will attain something because of it. In fact, I thought about this this last week. If life was about comparing, our Savior wasn't very successful. It's not exactly as if Jesus got some great, amazing degree and accomplished all kinds of stuff in his life. There's a little poem that I like to read from time to time. It's called One Solitary Life. It reminds us that Our Savior became our Savior because of his sacrifice and because he's God incarnate into this world. But if we're looking on human comparisons and human standards, listen to the life that Jesus lived. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never even visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While dying, the executioners gambled for his clothing the only property that he had on earth. He didn't have a bigger house than someone else. He didn't have a bigger chariot or car than someone else. In fact, he didn't have a chariot. He didn't even have a horse. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Life is not about comparing and accomplishing more and doing one more thing. Yet, of course, we know that through all the centuries and all of the time, Jesus is our Savior. Not because he did some kind of human effort things that showed that he learned more or accomplished more or did more than someone else. Rather, because he was God coming into this world to give his life for us and now demonstrates to us that it's just a dead-end street to think that somehow we can compare ourselves That's why Paul lists what comparing would be for himself. He says, you know, if if we're in comparing, then, then I guess you all have to compare yourself to me. And of course, we're never going to live up to the standard of Paul. We're not going to be the ones who were the first missionaries to start the church. He wrote more than half the New Testament. But he was aware that none of that mattered. In his relationship with God, it wasn't that he did more than someone else. It was still all about Christ's gift to him and the grace that he experienced. Comparing ourselves to others is a dead-end street that just gets us full of anxiety and frustration. I was 50 years old when I started running again. And it's really interesting because I go back now and I try to think of some of the stuff that inspired me when I decided to take back a sport that I had done when I was young And at the time when I started running, I had a Runner's World magazine that I picked up in a store. And there were two articles in that magazine that really touched me. The first one was about a guy who told the story of a race that he was in. He said how he had just recently started running and and he had just finished his first five kilometer. And his whole point in the story was, don't try to compete and compare yourself to someone else. He said he had made the mistake because he tried to compare himself to everyone else, and he started realizing in the middle of the race that everybody was better than him, and he just kept getting past. He said by the end of the race, he said he was kind of happy that he was finishing the five-kilometer, but he saw two people in front of him, and he decided, I think I can beat them. So he ran as hard as he could to beat them at the finish line. He said he got through the finish line, he turned around, and he realized one of them was an eight-year-old girl. And he said, if that wasn't bad enough, the other one was a World War II vet, that everybody was there that day to honor the fact that this guy had run this five kilometer. And he said his heart just sunk. He thought, it's not about comparing to someone else. It's not about thinking I have to do more than the next person. The other thing that I read in that same magazine was a guy who wrote a little editorial, and he, said, he was, said the magazine asked me to write an article on my favorite run ever. And he said, so what I did is I called up my son, and he said, I asked my son if he and I could go out for a run. And, and the guy was in his 50s, and his son was in his 20s, and he showed up in New York City, and he said the two of them went for a run in Central Park. He said we went for like an 8 or a 10-mile run. And he said, on the run, I said to my son, would you, would you help me remember my favorite run ever? And as they were running, he recalled some races that he had done really well in. And then he started talking to his son about races he had watched his son run. And he talked about when his son was in college and he had attended those races and how important those were. And he talked about times when he'd come in first in a race and other times when he came back from an injury. And he said, when the whole run was over. He had just a beautiful afternoon with his son. And he said, now you know my most important run ever. It wasn't about accomplishment. It's not about doing more than someone else. Life is not about adding one more thing. It's about that grace that God gives to us that allows us to have a relationship with him and have a free relationship with one another. Amen? That's what, that's what life is about. But the Apostle Paul is sitting in prison for a crime he never committed, and he ends up being executed because of his faith. It's not about doing more than someone else. It's about understanding that we in God's sight are perfect, not because we're perfect, but because of what Christ has done for us, which is why once we avoid legalism and beware of comparing ourselves to others, we commit to Christ. We commit to Christ. As the disciples, when people were leaving Jesus and they were still there and, and Jesus says, why don't you leave also? And they said, where else will we go? You alone have the words of life. That's where, how we're invited to live our life every single day, to commit ourselves to the one who did everything for you. He gave his life for you in order that you and I don't have to sit around and feel less than others. Verses 8 through 10. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then, that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The word Paul uses here is the Greek word huper exo. It means super worth. The super worth of knowing Christ. Think of things that have value in your life. Your car might have value. Maybe your house has more value, so it's more valuable. Now, there might be something else you say is even more valuable than that. What Paul says, the super value, the most value of it all, is knowing Christ. This is nothing compared to having a relationship with the creator of this universe who gave his life for you and for me, who loves you unconditionally. No matter what you've done wrong, no matter where i failed, no matter what mistake I've made yesterday, today, or tomorrow, the love and the grace continues to be there. And Paul says that is a super value. And then we get a righteousness from God that comes from faith. We're made right. We're made perfect in God's eyes, not because of what we did, but because of what Christ did. That's that practical theology, the imputed righteousness of Christ. We don't have to work for it. But not only do we get a righteousness from Christ, but we also get to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Think about that. Now, there's a lot of things that are powerful in this world, and there's a lot of things that can do a lot of good. But there's a power out there that raised Christ and raises us to newness of life. And that power is the power of the Holy Spirit. And what Paul says is, nothing compares to knowing that power of the Holy Spirit. That's grace. We don't earn that. We don't deserve that. God looks down at Faith Community Church and says, what a bunch of nice people. I'm going to do for them what I haven't done for anybody else in the world. Or It's not like Paul, that God looks down at the state of Massachusetts or the United States of America and says, these people are better than anyone else. We're just going to do nice things to them. It's God's grace extended to every human being. For God so loved the world. Everyone. God loves a person that you and I don't like. God loves a person that is unlovable in our eyes. And that's why God loves us. And that's why God's grace is there all the time. Grace is such a hard concept to get our heads wrapped around because it means there's nothing that we do to deserve it. There's nothing we do to earn. One day I was driving over to get my coffee at Starbucks. Somebody asked me this morning, do you ever make your own coffee or do you just buy it all at Starbucks? I said, you really can make your own coffee? What a new concept. I guess they have these things called coffee makers you can buy for your house. I, I just heard about it this morning. Bad day. I'm sure none of you have ever had it. I was in a bad mood. Probably got cut off in traffic before I got there. And I get to the line, and the line was long. Can you believe it? I finally get to the place where I'm going to order and the person can't understand my order. So I restate the order and they say, I can't understand you. And the person says something back and I don't know what they say. And I say, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're saying. And I start thinking to myself, okay, you're a pastor, you better be careful because if people really know what you're thinking, how you're acting, you don't want people to know that. So I just kind of finish off my order in a really lousy mood and I get up to the window and the woman says to me, oh, the person in front of you just paid your bill. That's called grace. And that is just a tiny bit of grace compared to the grace that God has for us. And that's what Paul wants us to understand. How do we avoid anxiety? How do we avoid comparing ourselves to others? How do we avoid getting caught in legalism? How do we avoid thinking that somehow we're never enough? By understanding that we are absolutely loved and beloved by a God who chose to create you, who knew the failures and faults that you're going to have in your life, and chose to give his son to forgive you anyhow. And that's how we're asked to live our lives. Not to think that somehow we need to do more or to do one more thing to compare ourselves or to to gain God's favor. I conclude with some thoughts I jotted down last night after I was done with my sermon. I said, our scorecard world can't comprehend grace. You hear that? We live in a world that has a scorecard all the time. It can't comprehend grace. Our scorecard world only produces anxiety. Grace is God's answer. Grace means we are loved by God and don't need to change for God to love us. We are loved, and I quote scripture, because God so loved the world. Period. Through grace, God's love does for us what we can't do for ourselves. The greatest power ever known, the power of the Holy Spirit, changes us in ways we could never change ourselves. That's what Paul's learned as he's in prison. He's learned to trust God. Not to trust himself. Not to think that he's better. Not to think that he needs to do one more thing. And he just wants these church at philippi to understand what god has done for them and he wants us to understand the same thing that we might live this week in grace and realize that god's righteousness the righteousness of christ is literally given to us that when god looks at you he doesn't see the things you do wrong if you trust in jesus as your savior he sees his son perfection And now the power of the Holy Spirit wants to change us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to live with the reality of what you've done for us, that we might have a different outlook on life. That when we get caught into our thinking of thinking we need to do more or need to compare ourselves to others or think somehow that there's something that we're missing that we could understand, that we need to relax and relish in the power of the Holy Spirit that changes us. We thank you for the grace that you've given to us and the love that you have for us and help us to live according to it this week and every day of our life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.